0: number of years ago, I spoke to a young lady who was attending seminary. And when I asked her what she was learning in school, she said that she was taking classes that helped her to understand how the culture influences the church. And my response to her was, wouldn't it be better to understand how the church can influence the culture? Well, in reality, if someone really wanted to learn how the culture influences the church. They actually don't need to go to seminary. All they need to do is read 1 Corinthians. Because the church at Corinth was a perfect blueprint for how these Christians, these believers, allowed the pagan culture of their day to make its way into the church and impact the life of their church. As you'll recall, the Apostle Paul opens this letter by addressing their church's problems with divisions, factions, which were caused by their emphasis on Greek philosophy and worldly wisdom, so that they looked upon their favorite Bible teachers, the I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Peter, that type of thing. They looked upon them, their favorite Bible teachers, as if they were Greek philosophers gaining a following for themselves. And as Paul continued his letter, he had to correct the Corinthians on a number of issues, but instead of acting in a godly manner, and this is why he was correcting them, they were behaving in a worldly manner. They did let their culture influence them. They had a hard time breaking off from their pagan culture now that they were Christians. And so, like unsaved People, they failed to condemn and address sexual immorality in their church. Paul has to deal with that in chapter 5. Like unsaved people, they were suing one another, taking one another to court. Paul deals with that in chapter 6. Like unsaved people, they had unresolved marital problems. So Paul deals with that in chapter 7. Like unsaved people, they failed to show love to others who had differing views about a liberty issue. And so Paul had to address that in chapter 8. Like unsaved people, some of the women were refusing to submit to their husbands by wearing a head covering in church, and so Paul addressed that in chapter 11. And like unsaved people, they failed to honor those who were poor by refusing to wait for them to arrive at church to participate in the Lord's Supper. And so Paul addresses that in chapter 11. And so now we have arrived at 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and we're going to see still another issue in which this church was definitely influenced by its pagan background and culture, so that the apostle again has to correct them, and that issue being the matter known as spiritual gifts. And so I'd like you to turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and we're going to cover verses 1 through 3 tonight. This is our introduction to this rather lengthy section in Paul's letter of, about spiritual gifts. He writes this, Now, concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to the mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Now, as I said, with these words, the Apostle introduces us to the subject, the topic of spiritual gifts, and he will continue talking about this all the way through chapter 14. So it is a lengthy section. In chapter 12, he will teach us some essential truths about spiritual gifts, such as the source of these gifts, God's purpose in giving his people these gifts, the various kinds of spiritual gifts that are given, and how to use properly spiritual gifts, because they are essential, Paul will teach, to spiritual growth and the unity of the church, in chapter 13, the great love chapter in the Bible, Paul shows us how spiritual gifts are to be used in love. I know people always take this out of context, it seems. They use it at weddings. They speak about other things. But in context, Paul is talking about using love, being controlled by love in the use of one's spiritual gifts rather than self-centeredness. And in chapter 14, the apostle concludes his teaching on spiritual gifts by showing the contrast between speaking in tongues and prophecy, which is essentially preaching, with prophecy being the priority, being more important than tongues. And so tonight, as we move into chapter 12, we see Paul introducing to us the subject of spiritual gifts by explaining two critically important truths about these gifts. That first truth being this, spiritual gifts need to be understood Spiritual gifts need to be understood. Verse 1, now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware or to be ignorant. Now, Paul starts off this section, this section of his letter, with a very familiar phrase. Notice, and we've seen this several times throughout 1 Corinthians, he uses the phrase, now concerning, and then he mentions spiritual gifts. You might recall that we've seen this before. We first saw it in chapter 7, verse 1. Paul, using this phrase, says now concerning the things about which you wrote. And then he proceeded to teach them about matters pertaining to marriage, singleness, divorce, remarriage, and so forth. So what we discovered at that point is that apparently the Corinthians, certain members of the Corinthian church, had written a letter to Paul, we don't have this letter, but they'd written a letter to Paul asking him questions about a number of issues, marriage and singleness, being just one of them. And I say that because later in chapter 8, verse 1, Paul uses this same phrase again. Now concerning things, sacrificed to idols. So it would appear that they had asked about marital issues. They had asked about eating food that had been sacrificed to an idol. And now here in the beginning of chapter 12, Paul uses this very same phrase, now concerning spiritual gifts. And what that tells us is that This letter that the church had written to Paul, in that letter, they asked him about spiritual gifts. They had questions about these gifts. Now, we don't know the exact questions that they asked the apostle, but it would appear that what he wrote in the next three chapters that we're going to study addressed their very specific questions. Now, the way this is worded in the Greek text is literally, now concerning spirituals, with the word gifts being added by our English translators to try to make sense of this. So, the first question then of interpretation is to discover what Paul meant by spirituals. Was he, as some take it, not that many, but some take it, was he referring to spiritual individuals, spiritual persons, spiritual things, or was he referring to spiritual gifts? Well, the context tells you very clearly that Paul had spiritual gifts in mind. He wasn't talking about spiritual people. He was talking about spiritual gifts because that's what he proceeds to teach in the next three chapters. So obviously, he was talking about spiritual gifts. So the question then becomes, what are spiritual gifts? And the answer is essentially that spiritual gifts are God-given abilities That the Holy Spirit bestows upon believers, every believer, for the purpose of enabling them to effectively serve the Lord by serving his church. Let me say that again. Spiritual gifts are God-given abilities that the Holy Spirit bestows upon believers, all believers, for the purpose of enabling them to effectively serve him by serving his church. John MacArthur, I thought, as I read this week, had a great definition of spiritual gifts that helps us to see that each gift reflects something of Christ's character. This is important. Listen to what MacArthur says. He said, spiritual gifts are divine enablements for ministry, characteristics of Jesus Christ that are to be manifested through the body corporate, he means the church, just as they were manifested through the body incarnate, meaning Christ himself. Each gift the Holy Spirit now gives to believers had its perfect expression in Jesus' own life and ministry. His church continues to live out his life on earth through the power of the Holy Spirit working through his gifted people. That's a great definition of spiritual gifts. They're not this nebulous stuff out there. They reflect Christ's character. And it is this subject this subject of spiritual gifts and all the truths that go along with this subject that Paul wants the Corinthians to understand. Now, notice the way the apostle expresses himself in this verse. After letting the Corinthians know that he is about to address the subject of spiritual gifts, he refers to them as brethren, probably just to assure them that he considers them true Christians. Now, why would he say that? Because if you'll Remember, we've just come out of this section where Paul has some pretty harsh things to say to the Corinthians about the way they were corrupting the Lord's Supper. He was pretty hard on them, and rightfully so. He said, I can't praise you. You're corrupting it. You've perverted it it's a shame and you've dishonored Christ. You've embarrassed the poor believers in your church. So it's very likely that in Paul's mind, he just wanted to affirm his love for them, that he considers them true Christians, his beloved brothers and sisters in Christ. And then he tells them, I do not want you to be unaware. In other words, I don't want you to be ignorant about the purpose and the proper usage of spiritual gifts. Now, folks... The only reason that Paul would say such a thing is because he knew that the Corinthians were ignorant about spiritual gifts, probably reflected in their questions that they had for Paul. So what he's saying is that I don't want you to remain ignorant, I want to explain things to you. And it becomes obvious that they were ignorant about spiritual gifts based on what Paul is going to say in the next three chapters. And what we will discover is that their ignorance of spiritual gifts resulted in them misusing misusing their gifts by being incredibly self-focused, self-consumed, self-centered, so that they were using their gifts to demonstrate what they thought was their superiority over others who they considered less gifted than they were. In other words, they were show-offs. The Corinthians were show-offs, trying to pass themselves off as being more spiritual than others who didn't have, in this case, prominent speaking gifts. They made these gifts a competitive contest to see who had the most showy, sensational gift. See, the problem with the Corinthians wasn't that they didn't know what spiritual gifts they had, because back in chapter 1, verse 7, Paul said to them, so that you are not lacking in any gift, God in his mercy and grace had given this church all of the gifts that he had to give. They were lacking nothing. So we know that the Corinthians had all kinds of spiritual gifts. They weren't lacking in any of the gifts that the Spirit had bestowed upon them. No doubt if we could be transported back to Corinth and we would ask them about a list of their gifts, they would list all of the gifts. They knew what gifts they had. Their problem wasn't in the difficulty of identifying which spiritual gift they had. They knew which spiritual gift they had. Their problem was knowing how to use these gifts because they didn't understand them. They didn't understand why the Holy Spirit had given them these gifts in the first place. And they certainly didn't understand how these gifts contributed to the unity of the body of Christ and their spiritual growth. And they didn't understand how these gifts were to be used in serving others. And again, they certainly didn't understand that the way to use their gifts was by walking in love towards one another. Listen, I want you to understand this is not an ancient issue that has no relevancy for us today because Christians today are often just as ignorant about spiritual gifts as the Corinthians were. And the proof of this is to look at the charismatic movement today with their heavy emphasis on spiritual gifts as evidence of spirituality, of godliness, of being filled with the Spirit. In fact, there is probably no issue that is more controversial amongst Christians in recent years than the charismatic issues, the charismatic movement as believers, are divided over a number of issues related to the charismatic movement, such as whether or not God is giving new revelation today in the form of speaking in tongues. If you believe in speaking in tongues, you have to believe that God is giving new revelation today. Well, that's a controversial issue. There's a debate over whether or not certain gifts are given today by the Holy Spirit or whether he has ceased giving certain gifts, which we would call sign gifts. Did they cease in the first century? When the canon of scripture was closed or when the nation of Israel received the judgment of God in 70 AD, did that close out those gifts, those signed gifts, or are they in operation today? Well, that's a debatable issue over what is the baptism of the Holy Spirit and a host of just other issues related to the charismatic movement. So, ignorance about spiritual gifts abound in our time as well. And, and we need an understanding of this issue just as much as the Corinthians did. So, this is quite pertinent, quite relevant. And Paul is going to give us this understanding as we follow him in his teaching of the Corinthians about spiritual gifts. But before Paul can teach them anything about these gifts, he has to first explain to them how to discern the difference between the activity of God's Spirit in the area of spiritual gifts and their old demonically inspired pagan religious ways that they followed before they were converted. And that issue is the second critically important truth that Paul teaches them in these opening verses concerning spiritual gifts. So, having told them that spiritual gifts need to be understood... And he's going to help them to understand this because they were ignorant about them. Paul now tells them, number two, spiritual gifts are not at all what they experienced in their former pagan religion. Verse two, you know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Now, with this statement, Paul reminds the Corinthians that prior to becoming Christians, Most of them were pagans. They were heathen. They were lost and in pagan idolatrous religion. As pagans, Paul said, you used to worship mute idols. These idols couldn't speak. They were mute idols. And Paul tells them that they were led astray to mute idols. With the word led astray being a word that was used of a prisoner being carried away. Somebody dominating them. Somebody carrying them off. In other words, they were under the control and dominance of the only one who would lead them to worship mute idols, and that's Satan himself, accompanied by demons. So what Paul is telling the Corinthians is that prior to their conversion, they were under the control of the devil. He led them astray so that they were involved in idolatry and false religion. Now, back in Paul's day, a form of religion known as mystery religions was extremely popular. And no doubt many, if not most, of the Corinthians before becoming Christians were part of a mystery religion. This would not be true of Jewish people in the congregation, but this congregation was made up primarily of Gentiles. So most of them were involved in a mystery religion. So what were these mystery religions like? How did they impact the Corinthians when it came to the Holy Spirit and spiritual gifts. Listen closely as we hear. I'm gonna quote to you from one scholar who explains what these mystery religions were like and how they influenced the Corinthians and how eerily similar they are to some of the things that go on in some circles of the charismatic movement today. The scholar writes this. He said, several pagan practices were especially influential in the church at Corinth. Perhaps the most important and certainly the most obvious was that of ecstasy, considered to be the highest expression of religious experience. Because it seemed supernatural and because it was dramatic and often bizarre, the practice strongly appealed to the natural man. And because the Holy Spirit had performed many miraculous works in that apostolic age, some Corinthian Christians confused those true wonders with the false wonders counterfeited in the ecstasies of paganism. Ecstasy was held to be a supernatural, sensuous communion with the deity. Through frenzied hypnotic chants and ceremonies, worshippers experienced semi-conscious euphoric feelings of oneness with the god or goddess. Often the ceremony would be preceded by vigils and fastings and would even include drunkenness, contemplation of sacred objects, whirling dances, fragrant incense, chants, and other such physical and psychological stimuli customarily were used to induce the ecstasy which would be in the form of an out-of-body trance or an unrestrained sexual orgy. The trance is reflected in some forms of Hindu yoga in which a person becomes insensitive to pain and in the Buddhist goal of escaping into nirvana, the divine nothingness. Sexual ecstasies were common in many ancient religions and were so much associated with Corinth that the term Corinthianized meant to indulge in extreme sexual immorality. He concludes by saying a temple in Bacchus still stands in the ruins of Baalbek, which is in modern day Lebanon, as a witness to the debauchery of the mystery religions." End of quote. Now, this was the religious background, it's important to understand this, of many, if not most, of the Corinthians. And the reason that Paul mentions this is because sadly, tragically, they could not distinguish and discern the work of the Holy Spirit from the work of demons who they had followed in their former lifetime, in their former religion. Now listen, no wonder the Corinthians were so messed up when it came to spiritual gifts because they actually thought that the Holy Spirit was somehow leading them into the same kinds of frenzied ecstasies and uncontrolled outbursts that they had when they were involved in their mystery religion. In other words, they thought that their experience when using their spiritual gifts was similar to what they experienced in the past when they weren't even Christians but idolatrous pagans. And Paul says, no, you were pagans then, and you were held captive by Satan and demons who led you into those frenzied, bizarre, crazy worship experiences. Now, interestingly, most non-Christians will tell you that they are free. If you speak to somebody about Christ, oftentimes they'll say, I don't want to follow what you're following. I want to be able to do... If they don't say this, they mean this. I want to be able to be free to do whatever I want. Well, ironically, no unbeliever is free. Paul said, you were held captive. You were you were led astray. They may not even believe in a personal devil, but all unbelievers are under the dominance of Satan. And he leads them to do whatever experience he wants them to do. It could be uh, in a religious cult. It could be a false religion. It could even be atheism. But every unbeliever is under the dominance of Satan. Paul said this in Second Timothy chapter 2, verses 24 and 26. He said, The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth, and that they may come to their senses, note this, and escape the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. So, in helping the Corinthians to understand about spiritual gifts, Paul wants them to know that spiritual gifts and the ministry of the Holy Spirit in those gifts bears absolutely no resemblance at all to their past experiences in their mystery religions when they were pagans. And because they are different and must be distinguished, Paul proceeds in verse 3 to tell the Corinthians how they can know if in their church service they are being led by the Holy Spirit in the use of these gifts or if they are being led by Satan in the form of idolatrous paganism. Notice verse 3. Therefore, I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Paul says, therefore, he starts off by saying therefore. What he means is that in light of what I've just told you, that the Holy Spirit does not lead Christians like the devil does in paganism. Therefore, in light of this, I have something important to say to you. And what Paul has to say to them is that there is a way, there is a way to determine if someone using one of the spiritual gifts to speak is being led by the Holy Spirit or if it's Satan who's leading him in what he says. So Paul is going to give a criterion, something clear, something decisive, so that the Corinthians can very easily determine if someone is speaking by the Holy Spirit or if their vocal utterance is a counterfeit. Utterance And this criterion has actually two parts. There's a negative test and there's a positive test. First, the negative test. Paul says that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed. In other words, he's saying that the Holy Spirit will never lead an individual to say that Jesus is accursed. And what Paul means by this is that in a church service, if someone gets up and says that Jesus is accursed then he is certainly not speaking by the Spirit of God, because the Spirit of God would never lead someone to say such a blasphemous thing. You see, the word accursed means condemned by God, to be cursed out by God, to be damned to hell by God. To say that Jesus is accursed is to denounce Jesus as deity. It's to proclaim him as a lying, deceitful phony. And therefore, that he's deserving of being condemned not only to die, but condemned to judgment in hell. Now, you might wonder, how is it possible that someone in the Corinthian church would actually stand up and say in public that Jesus is accursed? And the Corinthians couldn't discern that this was wrong? How is that possible? Well, I've read a lot about that this week, and the best explanation of this is that Paul's referring to those in the church who were influenced by a certain pagan philosophy back then known as Gnosticism. Now, we know that Gnosticism influenced the Corinthians. How do we know that? Because when Paul gets to chapter 15 and deals with the resurrection, he will address this problem. The problem that the Corinthians had with the resurrection is all due to Gnosticism. So, They definitely were influenced by Gnostics and Gnosticism. And Gnosticism influenced them in what they believed about the person of Jesus. You see, Gnosticism essentially taught that everything that is physical is evil, and everything that is spiritual is good. So when it came to Jesus Christ, Gnosticism taught that there was a distinction between the man Jesus and the Son of God, Christ. Here's how one Bible teacher explained what Gnostics believed about Jesus. He said the human Jesus, and notice, they made a distinction between the human Jesus and the divine Jesus, or divine Christ. The human Jesus was an imperfect, evil, and poor representation of the spiritual Son of God, who, because of his divine nature, could not possibly have taken on a physical form. So they didn't believe in the Incarnation. Christ's spirit, they believe, descended upon Jesus at his baptism, but returned to heaven before the crucifixion. Therefore, Jesus died an accursed death as no more than a mere man. So, while glorifying the divine Christ, the Corinthians may have felt perfectly justified in cursing the human Jesus. So, apparently, There were some in the church at Corinth who being influenced by Gnosticism were saying that Jesus, meaning the human Jesus, not the divine Jesus Christ, but the human Jesus was accursed. And what Paul is telling them is that the Holy Spirit would never, ever lead a person to say that because it's not only the wrong view of the person and work of Christ, but it's sheer blasphemy. Now, you may be thinking that, well, this certainly is irrelevant, because for us today, because Gnosticism is not, if it's out there, it's certainly not a major philosophy in our modern world. However, there is a principle here that goes beyond Gnosticism. The principle that Paul is teaching is that the Holy Spirit never leads anyone to be in error about who Jesus Christ is. He never leads them to have false views of Christ, either his person or his work on the cross. Anybody who has a false view is not of Christ is not led by the Holy Spirit. And why is this so relevant? It's relevant because you may not recognize this, you may not realize it, then again, you might, but people within Pentecostal and charismatic circles actually, not everyone, but some, actually deny the deity of Christ. And they do this by denying the biblical doctrine of the Trinity, the triunity of God, that the Godhead, which the Bible teaches, consists of three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And each of these persons are full deity. But there are some within Pentecostal Circles, charismatic circles, who actually deny this. They do not believe in the Trinity. Robert Gromacki, who is a very well-respected Bible teacher for many, many years. He was a professor of Bible and Greek at Cedarville College. He wrote this in his commentary on 1 Corinthians. He said, approximately one-fourth of worldwide Pentecostalism denies the orthodox doctrine of the Trinity, known as the Jesus-only group They claim that there is only one person within the divine essence or being. So this is relevant. This is for today. Listen, what Paul is teaching is that when the Holy Spirit leads a person to speak about Jesus, he leads them to speak the truth about Jesus. Any view that someone espouses about Jesus that is not biblical, concerning either his deity or his humanity or his substitutionary work on the cross, it is devilish and it is pagan. The Spirit of God will never lead somebody to speak blasphemy or erroneous doctrine about Christ. But that's exactly the error that some of the Corinthians had fallen into. These people were so undiscerning that they couldn't even tell if someone in their church was blaspheming Christ. They were so enthralled with pursuing these ecstatic experiences in church that they no longer were concerned that when someone spoke, they weren't concerned if their message was even that biblical. All they had to do, all someone had to do in their church was get up, sound articulate, and say something about Jesus, and they accepted it from the Holy Spirit, even if it was blasphemous. That's how bad this church was. But there's a second test that Paul tells the Corinthians about. They can discern and determine if someone is being led by the Holy Spirit or by Paganism, and that's the positive test. First was the negative, now the positive test, which he mentions in the second part of verse 3. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Paul states that no individual can say the truth about Jesus, that he is the Lord, except by the Holy Spirit leading them to say this. Now, folks, obviously anyone can mouth those words, Jesus is Lord. I mean, an unbeliever can say that. But that doesn't mean that the Spirit is leading this unbeliever. No, what Paul is talking about, well, let me just back up and say, we know that that's the case because in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus spoke about unbelievers who will say to him on that day, Lord, Lord, we did this, we did that, to seek admission into his kingdom. They're unbelievers. So unbelievers can say those words. What Paul is referring to is the person who in saying that Jesus as Lord means, means it with all of his heart that Jesus is God. He's full deity. And he says this with full commitment and devotion to Christ as God and to his authority. This is someone, in other words, who's confessing that Jesus is his Lord, is his God. He's not just mouthing some doctrinal statement. He's embracing this truth. And the only way he says this, Paul says, is by the Holy Spirit leading him to say this. And again, the principle that Paul is teaching is that when the Holy Spirit leads someone, he always leads them into the truth about Jesus Christ. He always leads them to honor him, to exalt him, to bring glory to him. Listen, any movement, any organization, any individual, any group, any church that points people away from Christ and the truth about Christ Even if they point people to the Holy Spirit and make a great deal of the Holy Spirit, they're not being led by the Holy Spirit. And I say that because the Holy Spirit's ministry is to point people to Christ and to exalt Him. The Holy Spirit's ministry is not to gain attention for Himself, always to point people to Christ. Jesus said this in John chapter 16, verses 13 and 14. Jesus said, But when He, the Spirit of truth, comes, He's telling His disciples, because he's on the verge of being crucified and about to leave them. When the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. And watch this, he will glorify me, for he will take of mine and will disclose it to you. That is the ministry of the Holy Spirit, to bring glory to Christ. So when the Holy Spirit is leading someone, He always leads them to honor Christ, to speak the truth about Christ. Never error, never blasphemy, and never even pointing to himself. It's always away from himself and onto Christ. So what have we learned tonight about spiritual gifts? Well, we've learned, number one, that it is critical that we understand about these spiritual gifts, that we have a biblical understanding about them because otherwise it will lead to all kinds of errors and sinful Behavior That was the problem with the Corinthians. And that's the problem with so many today in the charismatic movement. They just don't know what the Bible says about spiritual gifts. They put their experience over the authority of the Word of God. Number two, we've learned that there is a vast difference between pagan religious experience and the work of the Holy Spirit. Let me say again, the Holy Spirit will never lead someone to speak negatively or erroneously about Jesus, and he will always lead God's people to honor Christ, to exalt Christ in every way of life. Now, if you don't know Jesus as your Savior and Lord, then like the Corinthians, before they were Christians, you, though you may not realize it, are still under the dominion of Satan. As I said, you may not even believe in a personal devil but he has enslaved you that's how deceitful he is and wicked he is so that you are in bondage to him the good news is that christ can set you free he's the only one who can set you free and he will set you free if you repent of your sin and turn to him and place your trust in him to save you if you want to speak to one of our leaders about that as we close the service then just come up let's pray our father we thank you for these three verses so important so, in principle especially, so pertinent to us today, Lord, as we embark upon the study, give us understanding, give us insight, help us to interpret properly your word and to apply it properly. Lord, help us, even as we learn these things, to never be nasty to those who disagree with us to never be unloving, but to speak the truth in love, but to speak the truth. So I pray that what's been studied today will give greater clarification to this issue, and I pray in weeks to come that you'll give us even more understanding of this important subject. And I do pray, Lord, if there's anybody here who has never turned to Christ, never trusted him that tonight might be the night of their salvation. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.